All right, if you brought a Bible, I invite you to take that out now. We have, uh, we have our work cut out for us this morning. Uh, we are covering all of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. So we have 16 verses to uh, deal with, and if the Lord wills, we will get through them all. And if you would, please stand in honor of hearing from God. We're going to just deal with the first five verses here at the outset. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 4, reading from the ESV, the Word of God says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is, by, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And let's pray now. Lord God, we come to you grateful that you hear our prayers. I thank you that you give us an ear, that you would hear our pleas, our cries, our petitions. Uh, you are a faithful God to hear and answer our prayers. may not always be in the way that we want, but you do. And I have a particular request today that we would really focus in on truth. The word truth is extremely important, and it plays a central role in this text here today. We want to be people of truth, and your word is truth. So I ask that you would really uh, help us to engage our minds and focus in there today. And we pray this in the name of the, the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> Christianity has a problem. It has a problem. It's not a new problem. It's been around for a long time. It existed back in the first century as Paul was writing to Timothy and Ephesus. And in, the problem persists, and it exists all the way up to today in the 21st century. And we can sum up this problem in a single word. The word is apostasy. Apostasy. So to someone, for someone who commits apostasy, they'd be known as an apostate. This is one uh, who at one time believed and trusted in the true and living God and believed in his word. But now, having committed apostasy, has since departed, and they no longer believe as they once did. We have a lot of examples, actually, in Scripture of people committing apostasy. Lord willing, in 2 Timothy, we will meet a man named Demas, who was a partner with Paul. He was a believer, partnering with the Apostle Paul, but the text tells us that he was in love with this present world, such that he departed and deserted Paul. We have a, a large group of people in John chapter 6 that are following Jesus. They're, they're called disciples even. 
Uh, but in John 6, 66, it says they turned back and no longer followed him. We have examples in parables like the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils that Jesus told. He said some people will receive the word and they'll receive it with joy and they will believe for a while. But in time of testing, they fall away. So again, the problem existed back then and it exists today. Let me give you some uh, real-life examples from our world today. If we look around, we will find people today who have committed apostasy, or currently they are apostates. Uh, let me show you on the screen some folks that you may recognize. First one there is uh, George Clooney, famous actor, grew up Roman Catholic, now turned atheist. And he said, all I know is that as an individual, I won't allow this life the only thing I know to exist, to be wasted. A lot of irony in that. Comedian and actor Ricky Gervais, uh, he told the story about being a little boy, about eight years old, uh, going to Sunday school and came home and was drawing pictures of Jesus until his older brother came in and began to challenge his faith. And it was right then and there that Ricky said he began to turn. And he is now this very outspoken, vocal atheist. You may or may not recognize Rhett and Link. Uh, these guys are millionaires. They got uh, rich off of a YouTube channel. Uh, Good Mythical Morning was the name of it. And they were both raised as Christians, even served as missionaries during their time in college. But both have since abandoned the faith. Popular Christian author Joshua Harris wrote an extremely popular book back in the day called I Kiss Dating Goodbye and followed that up with Boy Meets Girl. He has since left Christianity and recanted his teachings. Brady Goodwin, better known as the rapper Fanatic, uh, he was one of the founding members of a, 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 quite a popular rap group, Christians, uh, called the Cross Movement. I'm a big fan of the Cross Movement, and Fanatic was there from the beginning. But just last year, uh, he said this. He said, I sent a letter to my church withdrawing my membership, saying that I'm denouncing the Christian faith that I have believed, professed, proclaimed, and defended for the last 30 years of my life. And lastly, Abraham Piper. He is the son of famous uh, preacher John Piper. Grew up in a Christian home. Nowadays, you can find him prolific out there on TikTok speaking about his deconversion. In one of those videos, in a moment of honesty, Piper said, At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical. But really, I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Apostasy, and there are countless others in our world. And I'll bet you anything, you probably know somebody. And this might really be uh, pertinent to you because it might be a child of yours that's gone wayward as an adult, that you raised them up in the faith. And right now they have since departed and abandoned Christianity. This is a problem in Christianity. And again, I said it's not a new problem. It existed back then in the first century. Verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, 
Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's the Greek verb there that gets translated departed from the faith is where we get the word apostasy. So let's be clear on who, who is an apostate and who isn't, okay? An apostate isn't somebody who struggles with doubt. It's not a person who struggles with sin. This isn't a person who in a moment of weakness gives in, succumbs to temptation, and has a moral failing. Those aren't apostates. An apostate is someone who is deliberate. It's a deliberate denial and departure from Christ. It's intentional, very purposeful, a willing abandonment. And so who's behind all of this? The text tells us in the second half of verse 1, it is deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And when you talk about deceitful spirits and you know, the demonic realm, I, I think there's, there's two errors that could be made there. Uh, let, let me provide a visual for you. Imagine a pier, okay? It's summertime. Many of us are planning vacations. Hopefully, you get to go somewhere where there's a body of water. Probably not as picturesque as that. Uh, I did some digging on Google to find that nice image. But the goal to a, a, a pier is to stay on the pier, right? You walk that narrow path there because you could fall off to the left or you could fall off to the right. And I think when it comes to the demonic realm, people fall off in both directions. One is they deny it altogether. You know, that's, that's primitive thinking, superstition. That's like some hocus pocus. There's no such thing as demons and the demonic and all that. And they fall into error and deny that truth as taught in scripture. Or the other side, you could fall off on the other side and there's, you know, there's a demon behind every bush and under every rock. You know, that guy took my parking space. The demons are out to get me. You know, I'm trying, I'm trying to eat healthy at the job and someone keeps bringing in donuts to the break room. Not today, Satan. Probably not what's going on. We live in a fallen world. It's unfair. There's challenges. Let's keep the balance and stay on the pier. But here, we have explicit teaching. The Spirit expressly says the source of this apostasy is demonic. The origin is demonic, but the agency is human. Verse 2 tells us that through the insincerity of liars, very strong word, whose consciences are seared. So we have three parties here, if you're following along, okay? Those who depart, those are, those are the apostates, that's one group. Then you have those who deceive, that's the demons. But then the demons make use of false teachers who deliver the lies. There's another group here, this group of false teachers who teach heresy or falsehoods about God and his word. And again, false teachers existed back then, and they exist today. And I know we, we don't often like to talk about this. It can be interpreted as negative, judgmental, hateful, 
Like, just, just let them be. They're in error. You know, they're not really hurting anybody. You, you ought not call them out. Scripture does not support that view. Paul did it in the first chapter with Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul names names. Why? Because he wants to be clear. Avoid these people. If you're vague and nebulous, who, who are these people? If there's all sorts of ambiguity, you don't know. So at times, there has to be some names named. And again, it's not very popular, so I, I'm not trying to be salacious here today. Honestly, I'm not. I'm not trying to be provocative or edgy or anything like that. No. Why is this important? Because, again, we love truth, remember? We love truth and we love people. And if people are deceived by lies, then we need to let them know the truth and to avoid those people who are telling them the lies. And there's, you just turn on the TV, there's a lot of them. Just because somebody's on TV doesn't mean that that's good teaching. They talk about God, they hold a Bible. You got to be discerning. So very clearly and very sober-mindedly, I will say to you that there are false teachers like a Joel Osteen on television who are leading people astray. He's very popular. I know this. And he's very dangerous too. And he's leading multitudes to hell. And it needs to be said. Very, again, sober-mindedly. And you might think, you know, Mike, everybody knows that. We know that here. Uh, his influence isn't being felt here at Living Water. I would, I would reject that. I would disagree with that. It is. Trust me, okay? And we need to have these hard conversations. Do it with humility. Why? We love truth and we love people. So I'm going to give you an example of, uh, Paul used the word liar. I'm going to give you an example of a lie being told by Mr. Osteen. Before I put it on the screen, let me ask you a few questions. These are the questions I want you to consider. If we were to knock on 10 doors, 10 households anywhere in America, read to them what I'm going to read to you and ask if they agree, I submit to you the vast majority would say yes. They would agree with it. Next question, how many of those people would claim to be Christian? And third question, is what I'm about to share with you biblical? Does it line up with scripture? Here's the quote. We'll put it up on the screen. Joel Osteen said this. He said, In dealing with people for several years, thousands of people, one thing I can tell you is that 99.9% .9 of people are not bad people. They may make poor choices, but deep down, they've got a good heart. I submit to you, you roll up on average Joe, and you just ask him, does that sound right? You'd be like, yeah, I think that, that's right. That's why this is so needed to be brought to the, to the forefront. That what, on what authority is he making those claims? It's not scripture. It's not. Much of that conflicts with our Bible. You know, Bible doesn't say that we're good people. Compared to God's holy standard, people are wicked. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 I know, not popular, not what we want to hear. But again, the emphasis is truth here today. And the Bible doesn't say we have good hearts. We have deceitful hearts that are leading us astray. Jeremiah 17, 9. Right? Mark 7, 21. Jesus spoke about the human heart. 
So it's not a good heart, it's a diseased heart, and it needs to be renewed. It needs to be regenerated, right? It needs renewal, complete renewal, a complete overhaul. Ezekiel 36, John chapter 3. So the problem here with this is that sort of teaching is why many people will say this, if there is a God, I'll be okay. I'm part of the 99.9. Are you not going to put yourself in that camp? You, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm sure I will pass the bar, right? But it's worse than that, though. And this kind of teaching is why people struggle with the doctrine of hell. What is that saying? That is saying that God is sending good people to hell. He isn't. He's sending rebel lawbreakers who refuse to come to Christ for forgiveness, who remain stiff-necked and obstinate. This is actually besmirching the character of God. No wonder people struggle with the doctrine of hell. It's because of teaching like this. And somebody has to call it out. People are duped. Why? They're duped because he'll hold up a Bible... He'll, he'll mention God. He'll use the name Jesus. He, he will. But people aren't thinking. And they're not thinking biblically. It's the sad truth. They're caught up in the glitz. It's style over substance. That's what it is. He's a good orator. Orator, orator. How do you... A good orator would know how to say orator, okay? <laughs> Joel knows... I'll bet you anything. He's a great speaker. I find him captivating. Great. I mean, I, you know, I, I know what I'm listening to, but I'll listen. Tells great stories. Right? Makes you feel good. And great ear tickler. Wears a suit. Got a nice head of hair. Good smile. Pearly white teeth. He's got me beat in every one of those areas. This is the closest thing to a suit that I have, okay? But people gobble it down without any sort of discernment, and it breaks my heart. That's why I'm taking the opportunity to say, why are people gobbling it down? It's because they're being misled by deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons told through the lips of liars. Paul's word, not mine. I'm just saying what he said. And people are lulled into this false sense of security. They are. They're believing lies, thinking all is well, hearing peace, peace, when there is no peace. And they're going to stand before a holy God, thinking that they're a good person with a good heart, and they're in for a rude awakening. And I'm, I'm willing to risk, uh, you know, ridicule or criticism, being labeled judgmental to say so. They will perish on that day. That's my heart. That's my intent. And somebody needs to tell them the truth after they've been fed lies. See, either we believe and preach the Bible and we point out when someone says something that contradicts it and we refute that, or let's just throw the Bible out the window. You know, I'll just throw it right off this podium here, tell you jokes to make you laugh and tell you stories about puppies that will warm your heart. Or we can do what the book says and be trained up in good doctrine because we love truth and we love people. Amen. See, that's, that's coming later. That's, that's the second portion that we're going to get to. So 
That's the second part of chapter 4. Verse 2 says this, that these false teachers have consciences that have been seared. You might hear in your uh, Bible that it's uh, cauterized or burned as with a hot iron. Serious stuff. We talked about the conscience back in uh, Romans, if you remember. Our conscience is a God-given, it's a gift, really. The conscience helps us make moral decisions, helps us figure out ethical dilemmas so that we can act accordingly and make those good moral decisions because it's, cause that's what God wants from us. That's why he gave us the conscience. It's a good tool to use. Should I do this? Should I do that? That's your conscience. Well, with these folks, their conscience has been so damaged, all feeling is gone. They're, they're insensitive. That's, if, you, if you know anything about cauterization, my son had uh, struggled with nosebleeds. They went up in there, cauterized don't ask me to explain it, but, you know, those of you who understand, you know what it is. is just it, the nerve endings or whatever. It just no more bloody noses because that's what happened. And so for these folks, the conscience loses function, and it's not operating as it ought to. One commentator put it like this. He summed it up well. He said, their conscience has been made insensitive to right and wrong because of some radical act of perverting the truth. An intentional turning away from the truth of God's word and permitting the demonic realm to take control of his or her mind and thoughts. And so how did it play out in Ephesus? Paul gives us two examples here. He says there were teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Key words in there, forbid and require. Don't lose sight of that. What's being forbidden? Two good things that God created, marriage and food. This is so typical of legalistic false teaching. You replace the sufficiency of Christ with something you do. It's, let's, let's get Jesus out of the picture. It's all about you and what you do and don't do. Notice the subtle scripture twisting. If you're familiar with the Bible, you're like, yeah, aren't there some dietary restrictions? Yes, there are. Yes, there are Old Testament dietary restrictions. Doesn't Paul say something about the benefit of remaining single so that you could focus on ministry? Also true. But again, those are not commands for us to obey. That's not what these guys are doing. They're forbidding and requiring. Very different. The Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I say amen to that because I found a good thing, right? Do not call anything unclean that God has made clean. Foods, of course. Foods are in view there. Verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, including marriage and food. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. See, false teaching seeks to get you to stop doing certain things over here and start doing other things over there. And neither of them are mandated in Scripture. You're making laws where there are no laws. It's adding to the Word of God. Because, yes, there are laws, there are rules, there are certain things that are very clear that we ought not violate. This is not, you know, uh, antinomianism where you just throw off the law altogether, be against the law. No, not that at all. 
But these are, these are things that are being mandated where there is no mandate. And what does that do? What does it do? It takes your eyes off Christ and puts them where? On you. It takes your eyes off Jesus. So you can be led astray and lulled to sleep by some smooth, polished preacher who dresses really nice and, and, and tells great stories, or you can be lulled to sleep and led astray by some you know, religious, works, righteousness, legalistic system. It doesn't matter how you get there, but the end result is the same. You're not seeing Jesus. That's really what's at bottom here. You're not seeing Christ. You know, I, I left the Catholic Church after 30 years. I didn't leave over a single doctrinal issue. I didn't even know what they were. It wasn't Mary and purgatory and works and statues and indulgence. It was none of that. I didn't even know that stuff existed. You know why I left? Somebody who loved Jesus and loved him enough and loved me enough to talk to me about him. It was Jesus. That's what we talked about. He pointed me to him and pointed me to the scriptures. No extra biblical sources, no rule keeping, none of that. That's how I got saved. Seeing Jesus on the pages of scripture. Because I had 30 years of just enough works to keep me just busy enough so that I wouldn't see Christ. That's the issue. And I was headed for hell because I was lied to. There are various roads to hell. There's one way to heaven. There's various roads to hell. You, you can trust in your own goodness and hope that you're good enough to get to heaven. I got bad news. You're not. Or you can trust in legalistic rule keeping in hopes that you do enough to get to heaven. More bad news. You can't. But here's the good news. Jesus is good enough. Jesus has done enough. More than we could ever need. Tim. Because if you hold to this view, you're going you're gonna to land in one of two camps. Pride or despair. You'll either just despair. You'll just give up. You're going to like, all right, I'm on this, this you know, works righteous treadmill. Just keep running. Just keep working. Keep, hope, you know, they never tell you how much good you got to do. Right? Just keep doing it. Don't stop and don't look at Jesus. Just keep doing it. And what happens? People, they give up. They collapse. Because you can't do it. You can't ever do enough. And you become what? An apostate. You walk away. You say, forget it all. Throw up your hands. And you, you're led to just despair. Or the other side, you, you, you become pride-filled through some amazing, like, man-empowered, white-knuckled obedience. You've imagined, you know, you, you, amazingly enough, you keep some of these laws, and then you become this judgmental, arrogant, condescending jerk who looks down upon people who don't have the same kind of willpower that you have. And it leads you astray there. There's no good ending to this. See, the end of the day, your goal isn't rule-keeping. It's Jesus. It's him. And the more you move towards him, the more you will separate from sin. That's tweetable right there if you're on Twitter, okay? 
The more you move towards him, the more you separate from sin. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll want to because you know him. You know, you know his character. You know what he's about. You know what he's done for you out of a heart of gratitude. I think Elder Jim said that. That's how we, that's how we operate, a heart of gratitude, not some rules, checklist, to-do list, all this stuff. It's a bunch of lies, and someone needs to hear the truth. So that's the problem of the first five verses. Let's turn our attention to the second portion of chapter 4. Because here, in the balance of this text, we see the solution. There's good news. 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, what things? Everything you just mentioned. Everything that we've been talking about. That, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's what he says. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. You're going to hear a lot of talk about training in these verses. A lot of toiling and striving, training in good doctrine. This is hard work. Now, lest you think that this is for the pastors and elders and people like me and, and you know, church leaders, church staff folks, uh-uh, this is for everybody. William Carey, uh, known as the... Um, father of, of modern missions. Before he went into the mission field, he was a shoe cobbler. And in his, uh, in his store there, in his business, he put up a map of, of India because God had laid upon his heart the people of India. And he would look at the map and, and he would pray for the people there. And, and one day, one of his customers said that he was neglecting his shoe business. And his response was, my business is the kingdom of God. I only cobble shoes to pay expenses. So whatever it is that you do, however you pay the bills, that's just how you pay the bills. It's not the end-all, be-all. You're in ministry. I hope you're about the kingdom, like William Carey. Whether you're a, a doctor or a nurse, you're in the medical field, or you're a teacher, or you're, you know, you're in the factory, and you're assemble widgets along an assembly line. You know, that, that's not all you're doing there. You're to be a light, and you're to be a witness, and be about building the kingdom in that factory or whatever your setting might be. Stay-at-home moms. It's not about just teaching kids right from wrong and, you know, wiping noses and stuff like that. No, it's kingdom work, raising up the next generation of believers who hopefully won't depart. So, the, so this text is for all of us. Don't think, well, this is, this is for me, Pastor Mike, Pastor... No, 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 no. This is everybody. It's all inclusive. And the word that gets translated trained there, uh, the Greek word, it sounds a lot like gymnasium. I won't even try to pronounce it, but it's where we get our word gymnasium from. It's like the, the rigorous... Uh, you know, enduring hard work of an athlete who's in training season. That's what Paul has in mind here. He's going to talk about physical training here in a moment. But this is a present imperative, meaning it's ongoing. It's continual. You just keep doing it. It doesn't happen overnight. It's, it is just like physical training. Like one good day at the gym is not going to do it. 
you know? If everybody just six hours in the gym, we'd all have six-pack abs, but we know that's not how it works. You got to stay at it. And time, over a long period of time, hopefully, you'll see some results. It's the same thing with the spiritual. That's why verse 7 says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Just no time for that. What are those? Uh, just go to Twitter and Facebook, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, have, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself, there it is again, for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he draws this comparison, bodily training and godliness. And he says, bodily training's got value. We know this, getting some exercise, absolutely. Eating right, taking care of your body, of course, there's value there. But how many people are all concerned about that to the neglect of godliness? You, know, you might go to the gym, visit the gym multiple times during the week, but you only visit your Bible on Sunday morning, in here, when we put it up on the screen for you. you know, but yet you're in the gym multiple times a week. This here, the, the godliness, the training in the word, has benefits in this life, because you can be used by God and, and be a tool in his hand in this life, but it also benefits you in the life to come. Whereas the other, with the bodily, you know what? Our bodies are going to return Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you know? And maybe everybody's glorified body has the six-pack ab package already. I, I don't know. You know, maybe it's based upon your level of godliness. It's total speculation, okay? I don't have chapter and verse for that, all right? But this godliness notion, how is this being played out? Let, let, let me share something with you that's very positive. All right? a, lot of, a lot of, you know, kind of negativity here today. Let me share with you something I've seen going on at Living Water. You really got to be paying attention. But I've seen it on Wednesday nights. I've seen it at other times during the week. It's happening here in, inside these walls. And it's happening out there in the community and people's homes. You'll see two women seated together with Bibles open. What's going on there? Mentoring. Mentoring is happening all over this church. And that is hard work, is it not? Think about it. One person has to have the humility to say, I need a mentor. Then another person has to say, well, I, I can devote the time and I can pour into someone and I can be a mentor. And then, you know, they got to get together. They got to carve out that time to meet up and go face-to-face, head-to-head, you know, nowhere to hide. And you, and you just, you open up, and you, you make yourself vulnerable, and you share your life with another person. And that other person, you give them permission to speak into your life. And that, that, is, that is where the real work of Christianity happens. It really isn't this. This is wonderful, and, and you know, this is part of it, but it's the small group, and it's the really small group, the mentoring relationship, where that type of stuff happens. You know, and I think that's the, the spiritual equivalent of someone on the bench press pumping iron with a spotter right there. And it's godliness. So good on you, ladies. I hope that's an encouragement to you.
Verse 9 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The question is, what saying is he talking about? There's all sorts of confusion here. You know, commentators are, I find them hilarious sometimes. They don't know if this is referring to what he said in verse 8 or what he's going to say in verse 10. And they, all these arguments and everything. I'm like, you know what? I think they're both good sayings that are trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So that's my official position. Both 8 and 10 are, are good verses. So what does verse 10 say? For to this end, we toil and strive. There it is. Boy, you can see, you just feel the hard work in here. Because, why? Why do we toil and strive? Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. More toiling, more striving. Why? We got hope. We have hope. This, this portion sits like kind of right in the middle of chapter 4, and I put a big heart over it in my, in my Bible. This is, to me, the heart of the passage right here. We have hope set on the living God. Our God is alive. Makes all that toiling and striving, it won't be done in vain. He's alive. He can answer prayer. He can comfort us. He can bring about healing. He can revive us. He can restore us. He can save us. The, the God of, of self-righteousness, he's dead. The God of works righteousness is dead. We have a living God, living hope. And then the second half of the verse, okay, let's deal with this here. The, the second half of verse 10, text says he's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. That's definitely a head scratcher. You're probably like, what in the world? You know, and 1 Timothy has no shortage of these controversial sayings. Here's what it doesn't mean. Universalism. Not everybody goes to heaven. That's not what's being taught there. I'm not even going to go into it. We have too much evidence in our Bible that there are people who die, they perish, they go to hell. Okay, that's not what's in view there. So what does it mean? Because we're covering an entire chapter and 16 verses, here's how I'd like to handle this. I've done this in the past. Uh, I'm not trying to sidestep anything, I promise you. Uh, I have studied it. I have, uh, a, a, I think, a solid understanding of it. But it takes time to explain it. Uh, and I don't want to give it the short shrift here today. So I'm going to, uh, Lord willing, make a blog post on our Living Water blog. Because I don't even think it's really central to what the main point here that Paul's getting at. It's just a peculiar verse that we're like, what does that mean? And, and I personally like those because I want to understand the word. Again, it's about truth. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, Lord willing, write a, write a post and we'll send it out in next Friday's news blast, the link to it. But check out our blog. It's, it's on the website there at livingwatercc.com. Janet Ritchie writes for it. Uh, she's done a couple of pieces on fathers just in time for Father's Day. Good stuff. And uh, Jeff Mason uh, keeps us updated on the, with the word on the street about our street evangelism uh, outreach every Saturday morning. So check out our blog. That's how I'm going to handle that. I'm not trying to duck anything, I promise. All right, let's read verses 11 through 16. It says this, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul gives Timothy some strong words. He says, command and teach these things. Timothy's a young guy, probably in his 30s. He needed that encouragement. And he says, you know, set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And we could do a five-week sermon series on each of those. Again, time is short. Uh, So I think verse 16 is kind of a summary statement. Let's look at verse 16. It says there to it, what it says what this is really all about. It kind of brings everything together, the whole chapter really. It says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. It's your life and your doctrine. That's what he's saying. It's how you live and it's how you teach. And let me give you an example of what I think that looks like. And I, and I will attempt with this illustration to bring everything together here. It was about 10 years ago. It was roughly 10 years ago. On a weekend just like this weekend, uh, baptism weekend. Baptisms that day. And uh, there was a young man who was part of our church who had just an unbelievable testimony. I mean, his story of coming to Christ was just crazy. If I told it to you, honestly, you would not believe it. I mean, it involved the demonic realm and everything. Unbelievable story. And frankly, we didn't know what to do with this testimony, you know. So he he wanted to get baptized. And he's here that day. He shares the story. And he gets in the pool right here with, with Pastor Mike. And I remember to this day virtually every word that Pastor Mike said to him. Pastor Mike said, dude, because that's how he talks. He says, dude, he's like, dude, I don't know what happened to you. He says, I, I, I can't figure it out. I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. If that was legitimate, if that was a true conversion, you will continue in the faith. You won't go back to your old ways. You, you, you will walk that narrow road. And you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And you will walk with Jesus. Because if you depart from him, just know all you got here today was wet. And I'm not a big amen guy. Those of you who know me, you don't hear me shout amen. But I was like, amen, pastor. I was like, that's my pastor. I was so happy that day. Because no one ever says that sort of thing. And it was needed that day. And so teaching is not just up here. It's not just in the lobby. It's not just in offices and homes or whatever. Teaching can happen in a pool of water. And so let me me refer back to my illustration of a pier. Let me show you that pier again because there's two errors that often are made here at this point. The one error is this. Somebody comes to faith and you never, ever, ever say anything like that. And that's what that person needed to hear that day. Trust me. 
And so he brought that to, the, to their attention for all of us to hear in attempts to prevent this person from going astray and becoming an apostate, right? Count the cost. Recognize there are parables like the parable of the sower. Let me quote this real quick, and we're going to close right here. The parable is this. These are Jesus' words here. Can we put them up on the screen? The seed, thank you, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, fall away. It's, it's a sad reality. And what do we see, though? We see people that go on short-term missions trips or there's some kind of evangelistic crusade and a leader will come back and say, you know, 500 people came to Christ during our crusade. You know, 500 people came to Christ in our outreach. We planted a seed and they are now in the kingdom of God. Hold up, wait a minute. All right? I think you've gone too far. I think you fell off the pier, all right? You, you don't know that. You can't say that. On, on, on what, what are you making that definitive claim? Have you not read this parable? I think that's the one error, okay? Then the other side of the pier, the other error would be, you know, little Billy comes to Christ and says, I, I believe in Jesus, Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. I'm now a Christian. Your response there isn't, well, we'll just see about that, little Billy. Time will tell. No, you don't do that. You celebrate, man. You celebrate that. But you acknowledge what Scripture says. And you do the hard work of maybe sitting down with Billy. And you pull out 1 Timothy 4. You pull out Luke chapter 8. And you walk through it with him so that he understands all the, the, the situation for what it is. You got to do that. Be celebratory, yes. Be celebratory, but be biblical. Celebrate with a seatbelt, I think is what I'm trying to say, okay? But let the word of God govern the situation. But you got to know the word of God. You got to be immersed in it. You got to be diligent to study it, to be trained in it, and persist in it. And then verse 16, in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, we don't save anybody. That's not what Paul is saying here, okay? You don't save yourself. You don't save other people. Jesus saves. What's in view, though? It's perseverance. That's what he's saying. He's saying you will be a tool to, to be utilized so that people won't depart because you're sharing good, sound doctrine. In the world of lies, you're speaking truth to them, found in God's word. See, the problem, we said it in the beginning. Verse 1, the problem, people go astray. They depart from the faith. The solution is people like us getting trained up in the word of God, living it out before God and before others, being trained up in the word of God such that we know it and we minister faithfully so that people might not depart that they will remain. Jesus said, those who endure to the end will be saved. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you only speak truth, that we have a place that we can go, we can open it up, we can hear directly from you. So many of us, we want to hear a word from you, Lord, but then we keep our Bibles closed. And we're looking for whispers and, I don't know, burnings in the bosom. I don't know what it is. We have your sufficient word that is all that we could ever need. And I pray that we're trained up in it, that we would know it so that you might use us in in this problem that will persist and maybe only get worse of apostasy in our world. So I, I pray that for my friends here today, that we would be tools in your hand, Lord. And Lord, I pray for our offering that these resources would also be tools that you have kindly let us use for a period of time. They're all yours. They belong to you. But we pray that we use them uh, in a way that, that is pleasing to you, that demonstrates good stewardship because they're not our resources to just spend willy-nilly. But we want to honor you in all that we do, including the, the generosity of your people as we are about to collect our offering. We do all this for you, Lord. It's for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name.